0: Revenge of the 80s kids has been rated P for podcasts.
1: Once again, it's time for 80s kids story Time. so sit back, relax and enjoy as I relate my strange tale of woe. It all began with the monkeys, that's what I remember, although my memory isn't what it used to be. Here in the Miskatonic University Hospital Asylum, they give me a variety of medications for my various mental degeneracies. Some of them are large black slabs that are intended to improve my cognitive functioning. Sometimes they just make me see stars. Anyway, the monkeys, they went to war, of course. I'm speeding through a few thousand years of evolution, but what does it matter when evolved apes begin to act like animals again? My friend, Sean, he died, which... I suppose was to be expected, but bizarrely, he wasn't the Sean I was expecting. Not that I had much time to take it in, as he died at the hand of a mutant, the razor hand of a mutant, it was set loose by a barrage of fire from one of the gun emplacements. All I could do was inform Sean's widow of his passing. Unfortunately, she'd taken a job for some kind of corporate magnate on top of a mountain. Sean's wife wasn't too broken up at the news of her husband's passing. It was probably due to the pernicious anemia and unwelcome night visitors she'd had problems with recently. She showed me the little rat bites on her neck. I never thought vermin would be such a problem at that altitude shows you what I knew. I won't even go into how screwed up the rest of that journey was. Suffice it to say, it was the first and last time I'll ever be eating a turkey escalope in that establishment, if I have any say in the matter. No sooner had I returned to sea level than I got attacked by a monster. It was a gigantic dayglow dragon. Thankfully, I had some assistance from an alien who happened to have popped in for, well, no reason in particular. Unfortunately, I got roasted alive by this CGI firework display. I was confused to find that I had survived. Then, who should turn up but the Grim Reaper who assured me that my continued life was no more than a clerical error? I had to go to court just to prove that I had a right to my own life. As it happens, my lawyer made a case that I was not dead by reason of insanity. It might not have stuck, except that he sent me the pocket edition of the works of Abdul Alazred to me in my cell. That, of course, is how I ended up here. If, indeed, I did escape my fate and the whole thing was not a hallucination brought on by questionable fowl meat and thin mountain air, The truth of the matter is best determined by you, the audience to my tale. One thing is certain. As always, Sean is
0: definitely dead. Leo, I'm ill. Haven't I suffered enough?
1: Well, you know, I just thought I'd try and fill in a bit, just uh, try and do my my fictional best. Maybe, Maybe it would help if we went back to the alphabet and we had a look at some more movies starting with various letters. It might help, but it probably wouldn't help if we had a letter such as N in the mix, because, as we all know, films beginning with the letter N, there aren't very many of them. Uh, So, for this case, we are going to say that because the word number starts with the letter N, if you wish... One of your picks this week may begin with a number instead of the letter N, if you happen to have that to hand. But uh, who is going to go first? The random name picker has done its work once more. And the name it has randomly picked to come up with M, which is actually a pretty popular letter, so I imagine we all have an
2: M, is Justin. Aha. So... Uh, now, I almost, keeping my noir sensibilities intact, because i I rather like it, was going to go for a classic uh, film noir, uh, but um, I didn't do that. Instead, I went for one of my favourite films, and that is A Matter of Life and Death. Oh, oh
0: interesting noise.
2: Uh, oh, have you both gone for that?
0: Yes. Ah, well,
1: let's talk about it even longer then.
2: Uh, good. It deserves it deserves more time. Now, this is an amazing story. Okay, essentially, David Niven plays um, an air pilot who is shot down in the war. He's supposed to die, uh, but there's a bit of a cock up in heaven, and essentially, the person that was meant to go and basically drag him to heaven couldn't see him in the in the in the fog. So he crash lands, and while in the process, he's talking to a radio operator at who he then kind of falls in love with um, because he's given too much time because he crashes he finds her and and then in rather you know then he has to obviously he's supposed to be dead so the representative from heaven kind of has to explain that well okay there's a bit of a cock up but he's gonna have to have a, a trial and all of this is kind of um, it's all obviously metaphorical because he's he has to have an r- operation. So he's, I mean, he's not like fine. He's he's, he's obviously a crash pilot. Um, so. So this is obviously representing the trial in heaven, whether he should live or die. I mean, this is like a, so such a kind of amazing kind of subject at the time. It's like 1946. It's just mind blowing, really. Um, and so you see this kind of fantastic. It's a bit Wizard of Oz like in that heaven is kind of black and white. And real life is ironically it 's kind of this almost gaudy, overly bright kind of color I mean this is 1946. and uh, so yeah he basically there 's a trial with various kind of ca- characters out of history who decide his fate that 's great anyway i mean it 's quite amusing first of all because all the all the all the uh, the jury are all full of people that don 't have a huge let 's say kind of fondness for the British for all various kind of historical reasons, and so you kind of got that aspect of the trial itself but then you've got this kind of just amazing imagery going on i mean the most impressive thing is this fantastic shot of this enormous like escalator kind of thing going up to heaven uh, of which the kind of characters are standing on ascending into the uh into the ether i mean it's just like the audiences would have not known what to fight with this this was completely unique at the time i mean just a real spectacle there's a lot of that stuff. There's lots of very interesting kind of techniques they used. So, I mean, you've got you've just got this fantastic kind of play, uh, you know, at its root, this kind of love story. But then, you know, the say the man's soul is on trial here and he's justifying why he should be allowed to live. will not tell you what happens at the end. But done through that to so the metaphor of him obviously struggling. To stay alive as he's having an operation. So it's, I mean, it's big, it's a big story. It's beautiful. It's got a fantastic cast. I mean, it is just, it is just an amazing thing. When I, when I first saw it, when I studied it, I was like, what the hell is this? I've never, you know, it just, I, I couldn't believe it then. And that was, you know, that was when I was kind of younger. So, so at the time, you know, it must have kind of blown people's minds. I mean, I think it's just, it's just spectacular. So that's what I have to say.
0: <sighs> yes, uh, I have, have a few things more to say. As well as David Niven, and also starred Kim Hunter, who would go on to be of Planet of the Ape fame as female scientist ape, I believe, in the first three movies. Uh, it is, yes, uh, just to clarify a few points, he doesn't crash with the plane. What happens? Well, is he he bails out of the plane and he, and he knows his shoot he's damaged. So it's a certain yeah. death uh, leap out of a out of a burning mm-hmm. plane. And of course his mate has already died on the plane, so he's he's so that's good by him mm-hmm. goes out. His mate's already in heaven. Now heaven is very interestingly portrayed here. Now for first things first eh, don't call it heaven. Whatever you do, don't call it heaven. At the beginning of the film, there is a bit of a scroll up on the screen saying, you know, this is, this is a, this is a story about two worlds and one's the real world and the other one is the world in this man's head. So, uh, but then it sort of goes in italics afterwards. So any similarity between this or any other worlds that may exist out there is purely coincidental. So it feels like there's yeah, a yeah. degree of covering their ass there about, uh, mm-hmm. but apparently there wasn't so much religious sensitivities as not ones that have, them t- have themselves tied down to portraying heaven in any particular way. The way they do betray Heaven, and it is a complete inversion of Wizard of Oz, with the real world being in vibrant colour, and Heaven just kind of being in a sort of... It's a very stark black and white, isn't it? It, Well, not stark, it's kind of glowy black and white. So it feels like... um, And also, it's the way Heaven is... Goodness me, I hope this isn't what Heaven is like. Whatever profession you seem to have in life, or status you seem to have in life, seems to carry over to Heaven. So mm-hmm. when, when they do have a, a big amphitheatre scene, you've got all the people in the same uniforms all sitting together, you know, in, in regimented, uh, very organised rows. And, you know, the, the guy who was supposed to collect him was uh, someone who, who was an aristocrat from the French Revolution. And, of course, another reason he couldn't get to him in time was because not only was it foggy, but he literally lost his head. Oh, dear mm-hmm. me. So, you know, of course, you know, there's a certain aristocracy about... Heaven as well. And indeed, there is a degree of, shall we say, elitism I shall deal with later as I, as I dig through this film. Yes, I first saw this on a black and white portable in my bedroom, so I had no idea half the film was in <laughs> colour. So I, I subsequently discovered that later on a second viewing of the film. Yes, he, he bails out, and of course he was supposed to know he doesn't, and so he's then <laughs> in, he's in recovery. And for uh, most of the film, he's actually in, a, in a, some sort of convalescence, whilst you cut away up to heaven where there's this constant bickering about what we're going to do about it, and because the agent who's supposed to collect him is coming down to try and collect him. And when he comes down, time freezes. And so you, they can walk around the set and all the other actors are kind of frozen where they are and they talk about things and a ping pong ball is frozen in the air from when they were playing table tennis. Uh, and so I found that quite fascinating. Oh, we are meeting in space, but not in time. Uh, so that, that appealed to my younger brain. because I, I was quite young when I saw this film and there's some, there are some wonderful I- I- images. The actual court where this is being held is a giant amphitheatre and the establishing shot of the amphitheatre is actually a shot of that, space that's... and you come close. Yeah, you come up close to a galaxy, and as you close into the galaxy, you realize the central the galaxy is the big, the giant amphitheater with the trials going on. And he doesn't really plead his own case. He actually has uh, uh, someone else plead his case for him, because it's a courtroom drama, essentially. And and the forces of heaven, quote-unquote, uh, of course, choose the first American ever to be killed by a, a British soldier or something. He hates, he hates the British. He was killed in the War of Independence. And, you know, they stack the jury with everyone who hates the British. And that seems really odd, because the question should be, well, this guy should have died. He hasn't died now. He's tired of living and he's fallen in love. And the fact that he's fallen in love is the complication. That's the quibble. Obviously the main plank of the prosecution seems to be the British are a bit rubbish, aren't they? Which I think like surely uh-huh. heaven should be above these tribal labelings yeah. and talking about the human yeah, being's I mean, life. Yeah,
2: it's about love, isn't it? It's about love and whether if there is a genuine love there, then obviously that is, that's more and more re- a reason for him to be alive. But, on, you, on
0: a, but you're right. It is, it's it, it's a very memorable scene when he's on the operating table and you see the surgeons working there. And by the oh, way, the, the surgeon, by the way, is the same actor who plays the judge. By the way, <laughs> and of course, you know the the back wall of the, uh, of the operating theatre, it gives way and then you see the giant escalator. This was a practical prop, by the way. They called it Ethel. It was a huge set of escalating steps going up to, uh, it was like over a hundred steps worth of escalator and with statues. And these were genuine historical people statues on, on the side of this great escalator going upwards towards the netherworld. I mean, I am going to give away the, because this is 1946, for goodness sake. I think we're past spoilers by now. Uh, nothing is is stronger than the law in the universe, but on Earth, nothing is stronger than love. Uh, Mm. And so, of course, that in the end, even though he's he's ruled against Commander Go to Heaven, it doesn't work because the binding love he has for this woman he's met keeps him here on Earth. Uh, So isn't that a lovely message to have at the end? Twist at the end, gentlemen, this is war propaganda, believe Mm. it or not, as it was uh, commissioned by the British government the sort, you know, suggested we make a film. I don't know whether they suggested this or not, I don't know, but they wanted to build up some positive British American feelings, because uh, this is 1946 and the Americans are over here, overpaid, oversexed. Uh, and so they wanted to kind of smooth out some of those British American relations. So this is why this film was commissioned at all. Nonetheless, origins uh, don't matter. It's what you get at the end of it that counts. Uh, in 1999, the BFI listed this as number 20 of the 100 greatest films of all time. And a film poll by Total Magazine, uh, critics named Matter of Life or Death, the second greatest British film Ever made number one was Get Carter, according to critics. Uh, so yes, this was a film that I, from the onset, I wanted to talk about. I was for a time confused that the title was Heaven Can Wait, but no, it's a matter of life or death. There isn't there's is an alternative title for, for America, which I think is like Stairway to Heaven or something equally uh, irritating like that. Uh, but yes, this is definitely a, a real treasure, a national treasure indeed, and it has stuck with me all this time. It's probably the only David Niven film I've seen apart from the Pink Panther. Leo? Well, I think the uh, interesting point to pick up here
1: is uh, something we were talking about the other week, where it, you have items of culture which are endangered by uh, continuous copyright and licensing. We've got a film here made in 1946. Now, you can go out there into the big wide internet and and for a reasonable price buy yourself a brand new copy of a matter of life and death to be sent to you on shiny disc through your door and that's all great and fine but the problem I find is that, well, in 1946, when this was on the cinema screens, and I imagine it was on the cinema screens for quite some time, it, pro- it must have had its fans. I mean it's become a national treasure. So then obviously, it being 1946 and, and many, many years before the advent of even the VHS video cassette or the Betamax video cassette or any other kind of format where you could play the film at home it disappeared from cinema screens only to get the odd screening here and there wherever a print could find its way in the world. And people would have to flock out and go, oh, I love that movie. Let's go and see it while it's on for one night. And thus it lived for many years in this way until eventually television got the rights to show it occasionally. And I do remember that uh, I've seen this movie. I obviously saw this movie on television uh, because, uh, you know, there has never been an opportunity to watch it in a cinema and they tended to put it on when they first started showing it. or it used to be like a bbc2 thing and they would show it at some obscure time because to a certain extent the culture kind of went well yes this is a worthy magnificent film that you know is very important in history but at the same time we've got other stuff to put on you know like uh gardener's Gardening time with you know whatever and and other things that are you know and so we'll put this on when we can be bothered and we've got to a stage today where I think if you probably asked a lot of people who were young you know have you seen this movie they'd go no and they have no interest in watching it and that means that because of the ridiculous copyright terms if we fast forward another twenty five years is it possible that people could forget all about this and I think that the answer is yes they could it's exactly titles like these which fall within this there it's like you know this film could be a hundred years old you know, it will be a hundred years old in, in less time than perhaps we like to think about. In fact, it will be a hundred years old in 21 years. Okay, everybody? 21 years. That's how old we are. And there is a possibility that at that point, nobody will even remember that it existed, which is a sh- would be a shame. And in fact, uh, should not be allowed to happen. But what is one to do about these things? I mean, I haven't really got much to add about the film itself due to the fact that the two gentlemen preceding me have covered it so beautifully. But I just wanted to highlight the fact that I realised I really enjoyed this film and it's one of my favourite topics and this kind of posthumous fantasy is really, really important. And uh, at some point during this podcast, uh, we we obviously, I mentioned uh, Dead of Night or maybe I saw Dead of Night in a shop and I thought, oh, I must buy that and I bought it and I now have it on DVD. And as a result, while uh, Justin and Ian were explaining to you uh, about A Matter of Life and Death, I indeed bought myself a copy, which Uh, will be here shortly. <laughs> because these are the things that need to be preserved and archived and loved and cherished and shown to as many people as possible. And yes. I think that's one of the most important points about this, this movie and indeed any other old and classic movie. I mean, what's interesting is it's nearly contemporaneous with The Wizard of Oz, isn't it? And everybody knows that, but less people know that. Well, there's less, and singing and dance.
0: there's less singing and dancing in a matter of life or death. Uh, Well, yes, but that's not. On your review, because I I looked this movie up uh, to have a brush over it before I spoke about it, I was picking up a strain of a different, shall we say, cultural sensibility from 1947 because there seems to be this thing of rules need not necessarily apply to the uncommon man which I think is out of step with how we probably feel about how justice should work and rules should work these days, where rules should be for everybody, thank you very much. Uh, so I'd, I'd like to know how you take on that. Oh, he's a, he's he's an upper-class uh, English guy with a nice smile. Rules need not apply to uncommon men.
1: No, I think uh, it's important to frame such arguments as prettily as one can in order to still feel how utterly wrong they are. So, yes, no no problems with that whatsoever. It's like if you take an argument and you pretty it up and make it as nice and as, as sort of emotionally engaging and so on and so forth as you can, and you still think that's not right. Justice is for everyone. People are just people. Then you know that that's probably the right thing to think. Whereas if you only ever cast that argument in dry philosophical terms, or indeed, you never try and make an emotional appeal to say, isn't this the way things should be? Then people are always in doubt, aren't they? Whereas in this, way, you go, what a lovely film. Complete nonsense on a philosophical level, of course, but lovely nevertheless.
2: But, so, um, you know. But you say about this, like, this being then, but I mean, what about, what about, um, there was a film recently that dealt with virtually exactly the same idea about rules and uh, love and being able to counteract, and that was—I oh, can't remember the name of it now. It's the Adjustment um, Bureau. Adjustment
1: Bureau. Yeah, but that doesn't claim that Matt Damon gets away with it because he's an uncommon man who is above the hoi polloi. Because in the Adjustment Bureau, they keep going on and on about this plan and how the plan gets redrafted and retooled. And every time they do it, they say, well, you know, these two people cannot be together under any circumstances. And the answer is, well, if you keep scrapping it and redrafting it and rewriting it... Why not just rewrite it? So, I mean, what does it really matter in the end? And so it's not that Matt Damon is particularly, you know, special in, except in and of himself. Matt Damon refuses to back down even in the face of authority. What he says is surely this is better than whatever it is that you're proposing. And that's far more a modern sensibility of the idea that the powers that be don't necessarily get it right and that it's all administration is this kind of Kafkaesque nightmare and people can be jobs worth and that's the way we feel about things now but yes the idea that somebody is allowed to be let off the hook just because they're a bit posh that's not it doesn't really sit well with us uh you know cf bankers uh but of course that means that m is nearly at its end uh, for we we don't need uh three we only need the two and uh you know i, mean, I think you know we've we've established a, a sort of thing where we're talking about uh high-minded things like philosophy and the preservation of film and culture history and we've got classic actors such as david niven and we've established this lovely kind of civilized atmosphere around uh the the table this evening and so i'm going to keep that rolling not really i've picked Mutant Chronicles from 2008. <laughs> My uh, picks tonight, not just weirdly for this cluster of letters, have come to what I would say is neglected and certainly underrated. Now, I have to be very careful in my application of the word underrated. People use underrated willy-nilly to describe anything that they think is brilliant that everyone else thinks is, is not so good or have ignored or whatever. I'm using this to say something that is, I think, unjustly derided, although this doesn't necessarily mean that I think it's the best thing ever. I just think it's more worthy of consideration than the world has given it. Who here has seen The Mutant Chronicles from two thousand and eight?
0: not me I have missed this cinematic masterpiece
1: now, this is unusual, in that with the ex- the obvious exception of Dungeons & Dragons, it is the only pen and paper role-playing game adaptation that I know of existing. And of course, Dungeons & Dragons is a bit of a no-brainer. Pretty much, it describes the entire cinematic experience of Dungeons & Dragons, no-brainer. The idea is that people know what Dungeons & Dragons is. You go out on the street say, what's Dungeons and & Dragons? And, you know, the average man on the street is a oh, oh, weird thing, which all those specky kids play with the dice and sit in a basement something to do with tom hanks killing people or something i don't know if you said to people what are the mutant chronicles some of them might say oh that was that film i didn't go and see in 2008 the rest of them go i don't know is it like a computer game is it like a comic what is it i know the answer is it is a pen and paper obscure kind of why make an adaptation of this particular role-playing game it does highlight one of the big problems of adapting a pen and paper role-playing game to the screen which is well what do you adapt really i mean they've kind of taken the world of the mutant chronicles to a certain extent but as pen and paper role-playing games give uh, the person who's running the game a number of story opportunities that they could run with in their game. You can't really adapt the whole thing because that would just be a mess. Oh yeah, we're back to Dungeons and Dragons again, aren't we? Anyway, you know, but and so what they've done is they've taken like one particular avenue of that and then put it in the world. And so it's not really from what I understand an adaptation of the role playing game in, in, in that way where it, it you know, they're trying to it, communicate the whole spirit of the, The thing, they've just basically used it as a world Bible and and made the thing. And what a world to make a science fiction universe in. I want you to imagine that it's the year 2707, but that it's on a different Earth, an Earth where an alien machine crashed 10,000 years ago and prevented digital circuitry from ever operating because of a kind of a field it puts over the planet. And thus, by 2707, our technology is only as far as it would have been in about the First World War. And there are these enormous kind of steaming death engines for corporations have taken over the the world and uh, they've entrenched themselves in a sort of 1984-like state of war where there are quite literally trench warfare and all of this kind of stuff going on and all people dressed like they're in a, a sort of a steampunk version of Adder Goes Forth and all the machinery is there, There's these big engines that run on steam and, and whatnot. And into this uh, comes Sean Pertwee carrying the torch for uh, British actors Called Sean in a movie, as Sean Bean couldn't, wasn't available apparently to die stickily early on in the movie. Pertwee takes up the mantle. And his best mate in the world is the mutant love child of John Travolta and Tom Hanks thomas jane no really seriously all the way through the film they've they've done this kind of processing on the footage that they took which i assume is digital footage it may, means that there's a lot of sort of shadows and stuff going on and in one light you're thinking gosh that's john travolta and in another light you're thinking no oh, it's tom haggs and you realize of course that it is thomas jane all the way through but yes yeah, so sean we and thomas jane are best buds in the tradition of sean death we we won't say what exactly happens, but let's say it doesn't all end up good for the Sean in this movie. And Thomas Jane goes back to uh, tell his wife, Sean's wife, that is, that that he's died and it's all very emotional. Cut to a monastery. And who's in charge of this monastery? It's a co-ed monastery as well. Monks in this universe can be men or can be women. It doesn't matter and they all live in the same church on top of a mountain and who is presiding over this monastery but of course who else would you put in charge of a co-ed monastical order but ron perlman <laughs> so Ron perlman, i can't <laughs> believe that i'm telling you. this is it this sounds like i'm making this up but this really <laughs> is the movie so ron perlman here so oh yes by the way during sean's sticky death Unfortunately, there's some fire from one force against another and uh, they uncover a big plug in, in the earth and the plug opens and out the mutants of the title, which are well, if you've ever seen that episode of South Park about the crab people. It's kind yeah. of like that, like these big guys like uh, with with claws for hands, like sticking it to people and they shoot them and it has no effect. And, you know, you're on, you blah, blah, whatever. Nobody really cares about the mutants. They're just kind of a threat in the background. And it turns out that the monastery, remember that with Ron Perlman? That yes. uh, is a place where um, they have kept this book called The Mutant Chronicles. Ah, you see where we're going now, which yes. explains that. In order, well, you could probably guess what it explains. It explains that when the plug in the earth opens, there's a machine which will turn the corpses of dead humans into mutants and then send them out to gather more humans. So the machine will just keep running forever and ever unless. A chosen one is to descend into the heart of darkness and do some stuff with a thing and, you know, the usual. As Keanu Reeves is not available at this time, Thomas Jane has to step in. And they explain all the way through a very serious act. They got a lot of serious British actors uh, that this will be a suicide mission. So the, the head of the monastery goes off to the city to entreat the corporation to spare some of the resources they're currently putting into steam powered evacuation of the disaster zone uh, in order to... Uh, do the suicide. me saying, I pick some people, they don't want to live anymore, and give me a ship, and we'll go, and hopefully at random, one of them will be the chosen one, and then they'll stick it to the machine, and Earth can be saved. Otherwise, Earth is doomed. Now, Ron Perlman might have had a tough sell at this stage, but... Luckily he gets into the boardroom and who should be running one of the biggest corporations on earth but John Malkovich. And uh, Ron Perlman and John Malkovich have a short <laughs> conversation which basically goes, Can I have a spaceship and some suicidal people? Yeah, go ahead. What's the problem? And that's how that ends. And off they tromp in a, a steam powered flying vessel to infiltrate the plug in the earth and uh stuff will they succeed who knows now obviously this plot is not the best plot in the, the the world and every time another actor comes up and you recognize their face you're like really they were in this um and and you know you're kind of puzzled as to what is going on i mean they've adapted a pen and paper thing what it eventually it essentially comes down to is first of all bravely this movie is 18 rated this means that the mutants like splatter everything i mean there's things sticking through things and horrible scenes of violence and god knows what and i think it was admirable in that the 18 rating is not handed out very often these days that the of the movie resisted the temptation to have any sexual content whatsoever i mean not even any cleavage everything is dour and depressing and all the the women are just dressed in like these kind of things and i think that's admirable because you know you, you know you're getting an 18 rating. Many film producers will be like, well, you better stick some tits in there then, I suppose. I mean, even Dread had a quasi-sexual scene in it. It did happen in someone's head. But, you know, you see where it's going when people are producing a movie and they know they're going to get the biggest rating. They're like, well, you know, let's just go for broke. But not these guys. Oh, no, they wanted to stick to their doer-depressing kind of, you know, that all that sort of First World War stuff going on. And you've got these huge cathedrals of stone and glass and explosions and crab mutants and and people being depressed and and all this and, and they've really stuck it through and then you get through to the end you think my that was one of the most bizarre hours and a half i've ever spent watching a movie i cannot fathom why they would have made this movie at all and then it comes up Isle of man film board so essentially it was <laughs> some kind of tax dodge or something but the point about it is that when I first saw this movie, I came out of it and I was like, I quite enjoyed that actually. I mean, it's, this is the thing. It could have just been terrible and it's not, it's not great, but it's, it's worth watching. And over time, it has become apparent that there are no other movies like The Mutant Chronicles you could probably imagine that there are no other movies like The Mutant Chronicles. And for that reason alone, it is worth watching because you're not going to see anything like it in the past and you won't see anything like it in the future. And therefore,
0: The Mutant Chronicles is my M. And there we go. It makes me think, you know, how how does a role-playing game get made into a film? Well, I think it's probably the case of someone who's in a position to commission these things had a son who was into the role-playing game, and he son explained it to him where he picked up the source material book and said, oh, this is an interesting universe, because role-playing games are very good at building worlds. Fascinating worlds you want to play with and do stories in. So I think it made a simple case of, oh, this is good, Ooh, we could probably adapt this
1: into something. Yes, it, it was a long time coming though, because I should point out that the uh, first edition, in fact the only edition of this particular pen and paper playing game was published in 1997. So they even missed the boat on tying yeah. things together. By the time the film was made, it was well out of
2: print. But and it also, be- it would be, it would be therefore cheap. <laughs> <laughs> cheap oh yeah, uh, totally. You, okay, you rock uh, up. But, oh, here's a world already built, like in terms of a design ethic and everything else. Yeah. Uh so uh and yeah no one plays this game anymore and if they did who's even if at the height it wouldn't have been exactly D&D so so yeah we can we can we can just do this and mo- mo- most people will just think we've made it up
1: Well, most people probably would believe that entirely. And the people who made the original game are probably very happy because it's like I think that's what people who write obscure pen and paper role playing games kind of imagine they made this into a movie. Well, you need imagine no more. And honestly, I mean, you know, you have got Ron Perlman in there and the five minutes of of, what's his name? Uh, John Malkovich. on his Yeah. John Malkovich on his lunch break. And, you know, Thomas Jane isn't chopped liver. So, and it doesn't have Shia LaBeouf in it, which for a mid-2000s movie, low budget movie, is pretty good. So, you know, it's, it's, yeah, it, it's got everything, it ticks all the boxes in yeah. that respect, and it has some pretty good scenes in it. I mean, one of the things that is bad is that they kind of overdo it on the CG, but when you understand that this is an Isle of Man film production, much like the uh, earlier, which I haven't seen yet, but will plan to when it comes out, me to watch some uh, robot overlords I mean the fact is if that's what they were doing in 2008 it makes me think that robot overlords might actually be pretty chunky fun hmm. yeah I mean they totally overdo it on the CG but then you kind of understand why when you realise they're making it a shed on the Isle of Man and yet you've got these gigantic ruined cityscapes of a sort of World War I ethic like this great civilization brought to its knees by war and crab people it's, it's cool <laughs> Oh, I
2: really need to,
1: to find it somewhere then. Well, when you come and visit me, I can stick it on for you because I've got it on okay. DVD because I yep. rewatched it for this. So there we go. Yes. So uh, Mutant Chronicles. Uh, so let's see if the mood changes again. Now, uh, just to remind everyone, we have said that there could be numbers coming up here. So now, Ian, you're either going to have an N or a number uh, because the random name picker has said that you will go for first with this.
0: I have a number and I'm without notes. I'm flying off the seat of my pants here as I discuss this movie. Uh, I am going to be talking about the number, uh, 2010. Ooh. Uh, yes, I am, I'm jumping over 2001. I'm sure 2001 is going to be part of our conversation, but I'd like to start with 2010 because this is oddly where I came into the franchise in a funny sort of well, the franchise. It's art for goodness <laughs> sake. It's art. In many ways, uh, that is what I like to talk about. There isn't really much of an argument about which is the better film, 2001 or 2010. But for me, I am oddly of a very small minority of people who finds it far more enjoyable to watch 2010 rather than the uh, glorious Kubrick magnum opus of this 2001. And it's, it's mainly because 2010 has these things called characters and plot... And, you know, a sort of structure and an end. Uh, Whereas in 2001, you kind of watch it and your imagination fills in the gaps. And I suppose that is in many ways the, the boon of the story. But yeah, 2010. Yes, uh, shall it's, Let's just get the uh, the rickety thing out of the way first. It, it was very poorly timed because the Cold War completely stalled pretty much as soon as this film came out. As, as far as I, as far as I can recall, the whole Cold War in space does seem terribly terribly dated now, doesn't it, ladies and gentlemen? But the thing that always did my noggin in was the fact that they they do go back and revisit 2001, and there's something just slightly. Hair raising about doing this again, because obviously you see two thousand and ten ago well that was, that was just definitely see two thousand and one, and then you desperately want to see two thousand and ten again, and you can 't find it anywhere, and finally it comes on television again and, and you watch it, and you can appreciate it in context finally and I was like whoa, this is this is actually super surreal and eerie the way they rediscover. The discovery and the way they reactivate Hal and it's the same guy doing the voice of Hal again and it's like, oh, this is this is really strange. The way we've just seemed to crashed back into this famous famous movie and we're like, oh, we're back here again. It's it. It's, I still can't quite process how this film was made. Now, of course, 2001 is a work of a, a movie genius and a science fiction writer in some some conflagration of that. Whereas obviously 2010 was commissioned by accountants and C. duly obliged Uh, and so I suppose it'll always be looked down upon for those reasons as well but for me I I, I really I still find I still have time for 2010 I don't know what it is about the fact that I find 2010 the the, the search for answers uh, more compelling than the first film which does have its merits but at the end of the day uh, art is easy films are harder Uh, That's my stance, I'm sorry. Art, you can poo on a plate. There you go, that's art. It does not make a meal, however, does it? Uh, Who's in this movie? Guy from Jaws. And Lithglow's in it as well. And Ahara Mirum. So here we go, it's something of a cast gathered for this uh, outing. Could we please have a quick discussion of the 2000-something universe, uh, starting in 2010 before segueing into 2001?
2: Um, yeah, I mean the third film in the franchise, 2012, didn't make any sense when released. Really, <laughs> anyway. um, it's not in um, space. I, <laughs> I, I
1: thought I thought the prequel, 1984, also had. to I don't understand how they
2: got from there to 2001. But. <laughs> yeah, I've got a bit of a soft spot for this. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I, you're right. It's kind of fairly rare. It's very rarely on anywhere. And I I, I did kind of watch it. Um, and I suppose at the time I watched it. I would have always said in two thousand and one, but this made more sense to me because at the age I watched two thousand and one, I remember being captivated by that and but really rubbing my head and not really showing what was going on and um, This was much more conventional, yeah, I liked all the thing about is it Europa it sets yes, Where, sure, sure. yeah um, the idea of that, and oh yeah, that 's right the thing that uh, I thought was spectacular is that that wonderful sequence of all the. You know, the millions of generating kind of obelisks all kind of coalescing over the, over the entire planet. I remember that was pretty impressive. Knowing the, about 2001, that was like, ooh. I think, you know, yeah, I I think it deserves a bit more love, actually. I mean, I think, I don't remember the ins and outs of it. I remember the gist of what went on after several years since I've seen it. But yeah, I, I, I remember it, uh, yeah, rather fondly, really. I mean, I can't really say much more about that.
0: Well, perhaps I should. A few thoughts popping in my head now because I didn't really talk about the plot. Yeah, they, they Americans are able to revisit the discovery by basically piggybacking on a Russian mission to go look at it. And of course, you st- it's almost like the scientists have finally arrived to make sense of this mess because you know they're going to the big monolith that's floating in this in this space and trying to toying with it. It's also given us, you know, when when in the first film when Bowman goes into the monolith, it's almost retroactively people have put in the line. My goodness, it's full of stars. He never says that in 2001. It's a 2010 line. But it's a great line, isn't it, for being sucked into a monolith. What do we feel about the explanation? Because 2001 has no explanation. We never told why Hal goes totally bonkers. And 2010 says he does because he was withholding information from the crew and so became paranoid because he had things he couldn't discuss. Uh, How do we feel about those kind of explanations being imposed upon the great work is that sacrilege well, well in, to the
1: gentlemen at all no well, no no it's it's fun. well apart from anything else 2010 is obviously based off Arthur C Clarke's 2010 Odyssey 2 and so I imagine the same explanation crops up there and as Arthur C Clarke wrote the novelization of 2001 which explains in great detail what is happening in 2001, including the trippy sequence at the end where he actually explains, you know, what all that means uh, per se from his notes that he cooked up with Stanley Kubrick. Yeah, it's fine. Uh, And in fact, it shows a sort of early knowledge of what happens when you introduce into a computer program a feedback loop because uh, it's, it's at that time uh, when uh, in the 1960s when uh, 2001 was being made that is absolutely true the worst thing that you can do in any computer system is introduce some kind of information which cause a, a loop because the the uh, feedback loop is usually catastrophic to the program there's a lot of discussion as hal is kind of the prototypical ai in movies uh, there's quite a lot of discussion about what one would need to do to make Hal a reality and you know there's a lot of discussion about one of the first things that Hal says in the movie is one cannot help but have noticed the fuss that was surrounding the departure of the, or something along that lines as I said do you realize how difficult it is to parse that language as a human being philosophically you know saying one cannot have failed to have noticed means I did not fail to notice and you can't have either. So it means that you have to know there's another person. You also have to know that both of you must have seen something and then you have to understand that in choosing that particular terminology there's a nuance to it that says but we're leaving ourselves out of this discussion. And just to be able to pick that particular way of putting things is a really complex piece of cognition that computers have, like how a computers' natural language process would ever come up with, say, one cannot have failed to or nobody can have failed to have noticed this. It's just mind boggling because computers just don't understand cognition on that level that humans do. And so people who've written their doctorate theses and all the things that Hal couldn't possibly have done because computers can't work like that, they don't understand that, even if they're not, quote unquote, Really artificially intelligent. The, the thought of picking some things that humans say, there is no way to write a press. We haven't got the the, the tools to build something like that. So, yeah, uh, Hal has actually been a
0: sort of reference for artificial intelligence study yes. for many years. He's a great archetype. And in many ways, 2010 is a redemption story for Hal as well because, you know, the whole thing is about he's is, is a, a bit of a flaky computer, isn't he? In fact, they don't want to even let him know that he malfunctioned in case he goes bonkers again. And indeed, they plant a bomb on him to blow him up should he ever get a bit uh, weird in the future. And their escape plan, from Jupiter, it involves using the discoveries of rocket Booster, and then dispensing with it, which means Hal will be left behind to be vaporized, and of course in, it, and they try lying to him at first that this is their plan, uh, and then later on, you know, but then when it comes to crunch they confess that, you know, we're going to leave you behind to die, and he goes, oh, so you'll, you'll escape okay, thank you, thank you for letting me know what the score is, and he, he goes through it, he does sacrifice himself to save everybody else and so it is, It is. And it, at the end of that, he is absorbed into Bowman to be with him so it is a redemption story for Hal too, in a funny story, who is, of course, blameless. Because in a funny way, because he's an AI, he's also innocent in a funny sort of way too. Of
1: course, 2001, 2010, uh, well, 2001 is, is, was a project between, you know, where, you know, Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke got together and, and wanted to make this grand science fiction vision. And Kubrick was quite happy to leave it at that. I mean, basically what they, he was saying was that this film describes the human race from its very first origins right the way through to its uh, evolution into a, a, a being of pure consciousness with a really long salute about a crazy ai in the middle and 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 kubrick didn't see a problem with that he didn't see a problem with having sort of 15 minutes of men in monkey suits and then history happens and now a spaceship you know he didn't see a problem with that he's like well that's all the stuff we know about so we'll cut that and then there's this whole bit about and now i'm on you, you know we're going around jupiter in a spaceship and the ai goes a bit bonkers uh and then light show and wow now we've become beings of pure energy except i haven't really explained that mm. oh, you know Kubrick was like that's how it should be and everybody's kind of gone along with that Arthur C. Clarke was like, mm, probably could do with some more notes about what happened there. So this is why he wrote 2010 Odyssey 2, which uh, got made into a more traditional kind of movie, the 80s. And I think they wanted to see if people would go for it. And clearly people didn't really go for it, because then in 1987, when he published 2061 Odyssey 3, I'm sure that Arthur C. Clarke went shopping it around, and I'm I'm... Not entirely unconvinced that uh, possibly there should be uh, a film adaptation. Knowing uh, the
0: story of 2064, whatever it was, it, it is a very different kind of story to the other film with respect to why it hasn't been adapted. It's a bit of an off uh, duck
1: apparently tom hanks expressed great interest in producing a film adaptation which probably explains why he was so keen to get it on cloud atlas but yes there was there was apparently an initial announcement they would make it into a film and then silence and uh, in fact uh, he tom hanks just won't leave it alone, because in the final part of this epic quadrilogy, 3001, Tom Hanks was back again in 2000, and he was in discussions uh, with regards turning both into a movie uh, in which Hanks would play Frank Poole, and that's it. Oh, but on November 3rd, Last year it was reported that Sci-Fi had ordered a mini-series adaptation of 3001 into production for broadcast this year the miniseries will be executive produced by Ridley Scott, David Zucker and Stuart Beattie so there we go and apparently the estates of both Clark and Kubrick are reported having offered their full support which means that if that does in fact happen we will have this curious incident whereby we will have 2001 made in the 60s 2010 made in the 80s one that was skipped over entirely that Tom Hanks was quite keen to be in and then a sci-fi miniseries that makes the last part of the thing without the intervening part in 2061, which will be kind of weird, but mm. there we go. So that is what's happened. So it's a story that apparently has not come to its end, and I think one of the most telling things about this uh, film uh, duology, uh, which could be a quadrilogy, and uh, blah, 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 is that nobody has noticed. Nobody got to the end of 2010 and went, well, I can't wait for the next bit. In fact, nobody got to the end of 2001 and even knew there would be a next bit. Everybody was kind of like, yeah, that's kind of over, which is kind of unusual. I'm not sure that there are many other movies which so plainly don't beg for any further material and yet have it. I suppose when it comes to the actual movies, I think a lot of people find 2001 quite boring. And I think the reason they find it quite boring is because it kind of is... I mean, you know, at the end of the day, it is what kept people going in 1969 watching it was that at the time, it's a lot like the whole Citizen Kane thing we said before about like what you have to realize about it is that films were not made like Citizen Kane. And then they were. And in the same way, space was not shown as it was shown in 2001. And then in 2001 it was, and from that point on, it always had a place. I mean, part of the mundanity of 2010 is the fact that it isn't breaking any boundaries because 2001 already broke them, even in its weird quasi-philosophical ramblings. 2001 was already there first, and it was made in 1969. So there is really nothing. 2010 just continues, and I think that's why it's kind of unjustly neglected. But yeah. as you said, Ian, it has plot and characters, and therefore, in some ways, is the superior
2: movie. Sorry. You're right, that is exactly why it's up. It's like, um, you know, you look at Alien, the interior of those ships wouldn't have looked the same if they hadn't been... 2001. 2001 was an incredible kind of forward thinking pieces of design that of which we still see the ramifications of it to this day. In fact, what's happening is that the reality is starting to look like that in terms of, you know, space flight and everything else. And look at those things. It's it just, just way ahead of its time. So yeah, it, it, it kind of blooped out the world and hugely influential. And yes, and therefore 2010 kind of gets, definitely gets kind of sucked into that. You
1: know, yeah, because, I mean, the thing is that in 1969, doing all the stuff like the the woman walking around in the circle involved these enormous sort of crane well, rigs and, and what have you, because to get those shots was so difficult. And I think from 2015, when you could just, you know, whack a GoPro inside sort of a salad tumbler and get exactly the same effect with, you know, and all of this with, you know, Kubrick was, was doing his best to make what these days would be seen as fairly mundane shots, but using equipment, which everybody would be like, you must be crazy. And that was one of the things people would sit in the cinema. They'd never seen shots composed like this before because to make shots like that would, it was enormously difficult. And Kubrick's obsession with getting where well, we have to tell the visual story in just this way, um, is what made the film what it is is and it is, it's kind of unfortunate that sort of Moore's law and digital processing and, and, and sort of the way that we now can gather footage, like any old fool can put cameras in these places. Like I, I've got my sort of 60 quid toy digital camera that films in 1080p. I can shove it in a little plastic case with rubber seals on it and drop it in a fish tank and get a shot from inside a fish tank that in 1969 would be like, well, how are you going to protect the camera from water? How are you going to keep yes. the film running? Th- there was Specialists in
0: underwater photography you had to hire... Exactly.
1: And it's, you know, the world has changed enormously and not because of gigantic slabs of black rock that people have left littering the moon. This is kind of exciting. I would be intrigued to see a film like Tom Hanks. Me and Tom Hanks were the same mind on this. I think if you've done 2001 and got away with that and you've made 2010 and got away with that too, just about because nobody hates that movie. It's just a lot of people don't really anything it then mm. you should really go the whole it's hog and finish of it. it off
2: without where the state of effects are now
1: you can do justice to it Three thousand one. apparently we'll be able to watch that later this year so won't uh-huh. that be great but you'll have to go and read 2061 so that's i think that's that's pretty much dealt with 2001 as much as it needs to be dealt with at this time in this place justin do you have an n or a number for us
2: i have an n ah. so now i i like my gothic horror But for me, there's only one count that counts, and it's not it's not some guy in an opera suit looking like you know a a realistic version of the count from Sesame Street. No, it is the one and only Nosferatu. Ah. That's
0: so weird because I was so close to having that as my end.
2: But yes, you know, it's some kind of German expressionism. This is uh, certainly a knockoff of Dracula. You know, they they were the, the writers were asked to write Dracula, but change names and various bits and pieces. But I actually prefer this. I prefer the grotesque character, the na- the physicality of the character. And, you know, the opera-willing kind of a cloak Dracula has kind of then become the very, the very fa- the kind of Anne Rice um, vampires, those kind of beautiful people. But I don't want to see that. I want to see this kind of grotesque creature of the night. You know, it truly is kind of terrifying and undead. Nosferatu is not sexy, and he creeps around... I mean, the fact that it's kind of silent really adds to the, this kind of menace, this kind of strange shadows and silhouettes thrown by this odd character. They made some little changes to it as well. They kind of put some plague references in when the Count kind of comes, arrives in the ship. So, which, you know, it kind of works because it kind of masks the nature of people being bumped off in this town. And the fact that these kind of infected rats have come along masks all that beautifully. I mean, it's a visually stunning. It's creepy as hell. And it gets away with a lot of the silliness that, that kind of became part of the vampire myth from Bran Stoker and all the kind of Van Helsing thing. Doesn't bother with any of that. It's kind of just this kind of weird, strange creature that he's defeated. As far as I know, there wasn't a sequel in the sense that, you know, he doesn't count or doesn't return any fashion. He's, he's destroyed by sunlight. And that's that. And that's the end of the story. It it just, I don't know, I, I, I think it's fantastic. It's kind of, deeply gothic and wonderful and the performances are amazing they're just really great checking
0: out you seen it. I saw this as part of my university uh sort of film studies stuff and my goodness I'm so glad I did you're know, quite right it's desperately cre- creepy I believe they uh filmed everything at you know just at sunfall so you have those really long eerie shadows yeah. all the time <coughs> also the city it's set in I forget which one it is but it has all those sort of houses on on a, on a riverfront, doesn't it? as I recall, and I, of course I lived in Bath for a while, and from, from across the office where I worked, there was a river with lots of houses, otherwise it's very Nosferatu around here, and indeed he is a, he is a, quite a hideous creature, he's, it's you know, these days vampires are sexy because, you know, there was always the undercurrent of sexuality about vampires, these days it's very overt, that just want to shag these undead bastards, but here, no, he's a rat-faced, hunched, creepy old creature from some god forsaken country we don't even visit he's aching for humanity he wants to come in and be one of us you know in, in, in that sort of way whereas you know he just wants to dominate this is when we become one of us it's a whole monster thing i just want to be human i appreciate you the person who i am it's a very simple thing to do i suppose but it's a scene in the ship where his coffin lid comes comes off and suddenly he comes sits straight up in, the, in a, a coffin in a very unnatural way, and yeah. it's like this is the first time we've been having any of these sort of things done, and it, it's still creepy now. Uh, and yes, and I believe you know it's, it's it's virtually an adaptation of the first half of the Dracula movie. I believe Dracula kills some other woman, turns her into a vampire, but this one he turns Harker's well,
2: wife. It's into... So to so the story that in fact the vampire was... is. Destroyed all the films, and we're very lucky to have one left. I think, yeah. you know, you know. Imagine, imagine if we hadn't had that. That what a, what a loss we would have to cinema.
0: Yes, well, I, I believe it is the it is the not harker wife who dies instead of some other woman, and of course she sacrifices herself by allowing, uh, Ocula, is it what is what he called, to come in. But of course she does it in such a way with the windows wide open so that he will be caught by the sunlight. But he, he can't help but. Move in towards this young woman. He can't help himself. It's
2: uh, Count Orlock, his name. Orlock,
0: that was right. Yeah. Uh, but it is it is seriously definitive indeed. In in uh, Vampire Masquerade, the role playing game, there is a whole tribe of vampires. Yeah. Within that is is the Nosferatu. In,
2: fact, in, urban, in, in actually urban fiction, in uh, in urban fantasy now, they kind of have you know you often reflect different types of vampires by you know they pay homage to that because it was so. Such a kind of visual kind of statement that was a complete antithesis of what people perceive as vampires, that it does deserve to have his own kind of thing. So yes, he has kind of survived that name as well. What a fantastic name that is. I mean, it's just, you know, very incredibly evocative and kind of dark and, and, and almost like you feel like when you're watching it, this was like maybe another classic of that time that you hadn't ha- perhaps heard of. And the fact that it's just made up as a version of Dracula, it's incredible because it just seems like
0: it's been around longer than that. I'm sure silent films will get round to it. We'll have Nosferatu Two, or something at some <laughs> point. Again, this is much like because I was very, very close to picking this as my end. And if we'd had a double overlap here, Justin, I think we may have to like compare our brains. Because <laughs> that, that would be uncanny. But
2: again, it's, on it's...
0: It's another classic it's, uh, of cinema we've picked out here. And it's also the furthest back in time we've got as well. We're pre-sound here these days. And I think the yeah. film's only about an hour long. I'm sure it's on YouTube somewhere. Go check it out. Nosferatu. What's weird about the vampire
1: is that... You look at Nosferatu and you go, there's
0: a vampire, that's fantastic.
1: This is what vampires are all about. And then you cast a glance aside to that gimp out of Twilight and go, oh, how far have they fallen? And it's the only cultural reference I know where, you know, vigorous, healthy-looking young men with sparkly skin are an evidence of decay and decadence, whereas uh, some hunched, durable guy with a bald head and weird sunken eyes. He's like, yeah, that's what it's all about. So yeah, that, that just goes to show what it, you know what what is going on in our minds there. That you know that's that's what vampires are all about. None of this sparkling rubbish. I mean, that's really all I can say. Again, you've you've picked it apart uh, quite happily there and i am quite happy as well that my end does not really uh, change the mood although it does shift it sideways a little but we're coming right the way back to the mid 90s then when uh, some uh, somebody, one of my uh, favourite horror producers, Brian Yuzna, was asking the question, "Is it too late to do an H.P. Lovecraft and anth- horror anthology called Necronomicon?" To which the answer was generally, "Yeah, pretty much." This is a movie that was produced for video; it, it wasn't ever meant to be in the cinema, and indeed, it only got a limited cinematic release. And is unusual in the fact that it is a, a an American Japanese. Co-production. Anyone seen Necronomicon? I haven't. No. Uh, Necronomicon is uh, in the classic vein of of anthology horrors. It has a framing uh, story, but in the cl- uh, you know in the vein of classic anthology horrors, it's not a very good framing mechanism despite having Jeffrey Coombs playing H.P. Lovecraft, which you would think would be pretty awesome, but it is not in fact, because what happens is that H.P. Lovecraft, in the 1920s, takes a taxi to a monastery, goes inside, says he wants to borrow one book from their archives, knocks a monk over the head and steals the key for the special cage where the Necronomicon is ensconced, and then proceeds to read that instead, and as the thing continues, it nearly he killed him but then he gets away into his taxi. And despite the fact that he's in the 1920s, none of the stories that follow the three actual main parts of the movie are. Now, one of the danger signs here is this is an hour and a half movie, so each segment is half an hour, which leads me to wonder, although there is no evidence of this on the internet, whether it was in fact a sort of backdoor pilot for an H.P. Lovecraft-infused horror series, Uh, because this, of course, was the time of things like tales from the crypt and whatnot and and so they were you know thinking well maybe we could get away with something like this but it obviously didn't play nobody at television well the reason that the television networks probably didn't want it is because this thing is pretty balls to the wall in the moments where it all goes bonkers it really goes for it because, you know, Yusna's been at this since From Beyond and Reanimator and Society. He knows all the people who do all the craziest stuff. So you you always start out like one of these 90s kind of crossover horror, stroke maybe softcore porn kind of horror anthology shows. And then when it gets to the last five minutes, and I think they were thinking that this would be like, the feature of this, it goes really mental. Uh, so we get three stories. The first of all, uh, called The Drowned. All the stories, and this was probably going to be The Thing for the overall series, with that someone picks up the Necronomicon, which leads me to wonder whether the uh, designers of GameCube classic uh, Eternal Darkness in fact had watched this movie, go, oh look, the book appears in all of the stories. I wonder if we could do something with that. So in this case, the Necronomicon was being used to resurrect the dead, one of the things the Necronomicon does best, Nomi Nomi, in which a guy had lost his uh, wife and son, and so he brought them back but they weren't quite right. Far more green glowing eyes and tentacles coming out of their mouths than he remembered from the first time they were alive. And in despair, he had thrown himself from the top of the house, committing suicide, having gone insane. See how this is all a bit H.P. Lovecrafty, although it does say that this is sort of someone's wife. And, and I'm like, well, yeah, H.P. Lovecraft, he didn't really do women, wives, all that kind of thing, all oh, something but wrong. So in this first one, Bruce Payne, who we've mentioned before, overacts marvelously as a man who has lost his own wife during the thing and he this is what's really weird about this so what we're asked to believe in this first one is that H.P. Lovecraft Goes into a library, knocks a monk over the head, starts reading a story about a man who goes to a house where he finds a journal in which he reads an account of something that happens in the past. So we have two layers of, he's reading a story about a man reading a story, essentially. Now, one of the best things about that is that's actually what H.P. Lovecraft was like as a writer. He wasn't very, that might be a few too many abstraction layers. No, he used to go ahead and do this stuff all the time. So anyway, Bruce Payne reads this story about the man who brought his wife back to life and there were tentacles in his mouth and he threw himself off the balcony. His first thought is not, well, I won't do any of that stuff. Then He goes, hmm, if he killed himself, then the book must still be here. And indeed it is, and he uses it to resurrect his wife because he's feeling that guilty. It's not supposed to make sense. It's an H.P. Lovecraft story. Everyone's mad, booga booga. And then Cthulhu pops up in the basement and tries to kill him, but he stabs Cthulhu in the eye with the spike on the end of a curiously spiky chandelier and escapes out of the roof, thus avoiding the fate of his previous day. It's been weird. Yeah, OK, so there we go. So in the second story, uh, based on the sort of the cool air strand of his work, the main character is a woman. So again, H.P. Lovecraft, not going to do that but we're, it's an anthology movie so she, oh yes, oh by the way just so I was going to tell you the main story but let's not forget the uh, multiple framing device thing that's been going on here. H.P. Lovecraft reads the story of a reporter who is investigating a series of serial killings in Boston and traces it back to this woman and he goes to visit her and says that she's definitely mixed up in it. So she relates the account of her mother and when her mother came to town 20 years previously. So, again, we have a man reading a book about a man who goes to see a woman who tells him a story. And what this story is, is that the woman came to town and she went to stay at a house. And then her stepfather, who she was running from, found her and tried to have his way with her. But then the guy upstairs came in and killed the guy. And she goes up to see him. And, oh, everything's very cold up there. And something strange is going on. There's a serial killer. And then she wakes up in the middle of the night and she thinks there's blood dripping down from her ceiling. But then she thinks it's all a dream. But then it turns out that no. No, the professor, in fact, has to keep his temperature very cold because he has used the Necronomicon to find the sequence of infinitely extending life. As long as he drains spinal fluid from corpses and injects it into his own body then and and keeps his own body at a constant low temperature, he will live forever. And then, weirdly, after a little incident with Roland, they have sex. For no reason. Well, so that they can explain the baby that comes along earlier. Except there is no baby because in a twist of the tale, sorry for anyone who wants, doesn't want this 1994 film spoiled for them, it turns out that in fact the woman who is with the reporter is the woman who was uh, having nookie with the professor and that there is other stuff going on. Now you would think, bearing in mind the fact that it's just a sort of serial killer story that, that there would be no room for gross out effects in this story, but oh no when the professor doesn't get his spot. Final fluid, he goes very explodey indeed, and it is a marvellous sequence where the professor kind of just basically, kind of half melts, half blows up <laughs> because he hasn't had his his medicine worth watching just for that it is the weakest of three stories so possibly best that it's in the middle then we move on to the last one which is called Wh- uh, whispers or the whisperers or something about uh, and this is a this is a story which you think you know where it's going and then you were proved oh so very very wrong when a woman and her partner Sorry, a female cop. So for some reason, female protagonists all all the rage here. A female cop and her partner go down into a sort of a sewer thing, chasing someone or something. Or he goes missing. I could I couldn't really follow the beginning if I'm honest. But it, because the weird thing is that not only uh, are this multiracial cop duo partners in in work, but also partners in life, as she is as shown pregnant with his child, and that is why she is so concerned that she should be able to get him back and she goes down and there's a creepy guy and a creepy blind woman in the sewers and they lead her deeper below the sewers into this structure which is built underneath which she didn't even know was there and there is something in the darkness whispering and then uh, i won't spoil this for anyone as i see the movie you think oh well this is going on for a monster of the week oh no it's not going there it's going somewhere weirder a lot weirder. So you pretty much have to follow that along to the end. That is the section that is directed by Brian Yusner. Oh yes Uh, just to mention the bit with Bruce Payne and Cthulhu in the basement that was directed by one Christoph Gaum who is uh, known later on for directing Brotherhood of the Wolf and the Silent Hill movie. So you see where that's coming from. Again like the Mutant Chronicles it's underrated in the sense that nobody remembers that it even happened these days. It harks back to the 80s and some of the big effects, horror effects with things exploding and oozing and gigantic practical tentacle effects and all of this kind of stuff. And I think by 1994, people were like, uh, can we just have like a serial killer who kills a bunch of pretty teenagers in found footage over and over again because of course that's what's much better in horror who wants to see imagination and tentacles and glowing eyes and crazy monsters and just really disturbing body horror who wants to see that nobody what we want to see is people filming on digital cameras people getting possessed over and over again so Necronomicon if you're feeling a bit bored by I don't know every horror movie that comes out these days.
0: What do you think it is about H.P. Lovecraft that makes it so enduring? I mean, know we always say we're a sucker for a good mythology, but this stuff just keeps coming back and I just can't get over it myself either. It's definitely a vehicle I always
2: enjoy. Well, many film incarnations have tried and failed. It's, It's just the bigness of it, isn't it? It's like you can have a monster of the week, you can have people in peril against some force, however powerful it will be vanquished, Okay. But when you're facing elder gods, there's really nothing you can do other than run away or screaming terror or you, you, you can hope to escape its, their gaze. Yes. So it's such a cosmic thing that it's not like the idea of a devil or something. It's like what if, you know, the idea of somewhere we normally feel, say, the idea of gods watching over us is flipped on its head. So now you've got a whole pantheon of gods, but they're all terrible, or awful in their way. They're all so awful that you can't gaze upon them, yeah. And and they walk about on the earth. I mean, it's utterly terrifying. It's you cannot feel more powerless against that. There's nothing you can do about it.
0: They they transcend good and evil. They're they're it's just so other. It's out there. And yes, it's it's evil flying spaghetti monsters that drive you mad. I think there is also the aspect,
1: despite its cosmic uh, one end of the polarity. Howard Phillips Lovecraft was not a man at ease with uh, the world in which he found himself or his his the, you know the processes of his own biology. If you just look at the the fish people in Innsmouth, this idea, I mean this is pretty much how he saw humanity this idea of these disgusting kind of slimy fish things uh, engaged in, in what he viewed to be unnatural practices, all body horror. David Cronenberg's entire career rests upon Our fascination with biological processes run amok, and certainly, what raises the middle segment with the cool air thing above being fairly ho hum is this idea of the professor, played by David Warner, incidentally, explains that he has "quote unquote" a skin condition that means that he cannot be raised to a a normal room temperature and must keep everything pretty cold, like he was living in a freezer, and it's this. This thought, when I first encountered that stand, the cool air part of H.P. Lovecraft's output, I thought, well, you know, after all the tentacles and nurglies, that seems a bit tame. But more you think about it, the more terrible it is, the more creepy it is to have someone. Uh, I mean, it's quite interesting, you know, the Batman villain Dr. Freeze, that um, to a certain extent, the fact that Dr. Freeze walks about in a giant kind of fish tank with like big freezing wet, and then it's played by Arnold Schwarzenegger and make lots of cold puns, you know, that kind of thing changes it, but it, the person who originally came up with, with, with Mr. Freeze in Batman was onto something. It is a grotesque idea of someone who must be kept at a very low, t- basically a walking corpse in a different way. And and the further you engage with this idea, the more disturbing it becomes. And it is not a coincidence that two of the stories – Yusna kind of got in on this – two of the stories in this anthology involve pregnancy and birth. It's all about their kind of fears and concerns of the way that our, our biology works and the strange biologies of these other creatures. And that, I think, fascinates people uh, yes. endlessly because our biology doesn't change and therefore things that play on fears of that uh, are not going to change either.
0: I I have seen a bit of this movie. When he said David Warner, I was like, oh, yes, I have seen this iteration of of, the Cthulhu mythos. I saw it with my brother, and he was terribly under-impressed, that Cthulhu was dispatched. He just sticks his head out the ground, and they jab it, and he goes away again. It's Cthulhu! For goodness sake, he can scoop human beings up score at a time and gorge himself on them. What's jabbing him in the eye and he
2: goes away he again? Will, he will, arise when the chandeliers are right. Yes,
0: <laughs> yes, exactly. It um, can,
1: it cannot be escaped that in 1994, Yuzna was kind of like, who was, you know, one of the, the executive producers as well. So he was, had a hand in the whole thing was just like, well, Nobody knows who this guy is, apart from a few nerds, so let's just use all the best bits out of the myth. I mean, you know, any actual Lovecraft aficionado would be like, that's not Cthulhu, that's like a polyp on Cthulhu's anus that he's fighting, that's not it's not Cthulhu. The thought is, if Cthulhu is really in the basement, then people in a sort of ten-mile radius will all be ripping their own eyeballs out. That's not Cthulhu, and not only that, we know it's not Cthulhu because Bruce Payne has to say Cthulhu and he completely doesn't pronounce it correctly. So you know that's he, he's not he going stand C- for that. Was he Cthulhu? Yeah, something like that, Cthulhu or something. Oh, for fuck's sake, come on! <laughs> These days, that kind of nonsense would not stand uh but there we go so uh uh, we've we've been through our ends and a a number begins hmm? Um, and so we are now into the final stretch and we have only o to do before the end of the show and the random name picker has determined that the first person to share his o with us is justin
2: okay so and now this is quite a recent film and we haven't covered it yet on animal show uh, but we're probably coming up to a point where we might do, we probably will do, but I thought I'd get in first because that film is Outlander.
1: Random noise. You've managed to go with it. Uh, At every point, you've managed to nearly cross over with someone else. Yes, that is my O also. Ah, uh,
2: OK, cool, OK. So, when I first saw this, it tapped into a lot of loves, really, but I think it just is a beautiful kind of fusion of kind of two genres... It's essentially a kind of Beowulf type story, but through the lens of kind of science fiction. So imagine, if you will, someone from a, is he from another dimension or something? No, he's he's from another planet. Another planet. Crash lands into Viking era land and the idea of the genesis of the idea of dragons and stuff, because there's a, there's a big alien creature there that is obviously going to be the thing that needs to be overcome in this. Um, he's, he's removed from his, initially, all of his technological gear. So he very much has to integrate himself into this society. Obviously, he can't really explain who or what he is. And so forms part of that society, and then eventually obviously has to deal with this this menacing threat of this escaped kind of alien beast running around, running amok. This, to me, is like, gets me excited. I remember seeing this the first time, like, oh, my God, brilliant. I mean, I love my Norse mythology. The reason I brought this up is because I think this is... This deserves more love because this is such a, it touches on this great expansive universe of, you know, there are little glimpses of what the planet was and all this kind of stuff. We should be revisiting. It's so interesting, you know, the idea of aliens arriving in the past. And again, other films have dealt with that, but you know, and making dramatic effects upon our mythology. I love that concept anyway. You know, I mean, Stargate obviously deals with that as well, but this is great because it's a different culture and it's handled better, I think. Um, I love the film anyway, the Stargate. And I just, I, I I think also, I think the main actor in it, Jim Caviezel, is that his name? Jim Caviezel, yeah. Ritzel, and he seems to be underrated as well. It's like, he, I don't remember him being well, pretty,
1: he's, he, he's underrated except for being in the highest rated network television show of the last three years.
2: I know that, well now, yes. But uh, as a film actor, I mean, that came and it certainly has made, you know, I mean, he's brilliant that, that uh, puts an interesting in now. You you would think after doing something like this, you know, you would see him uh, in these kind of roles and more of this type of stuff. Um, and it really happened. So you know, he kind of TV kind of took him, uh, and that's where he's now. I I I think it's kind of imaginative. You know, it's kind of really evokes the kind of the, the setting. It's a great story. You know, really executed well. And yeah, I you know, I'm never tired of seeing it. I mean, again, really soon So yeah, that, that that's my oh.
1: Yeah, I obviously have uh, quite a bit to say about this one because I I picked it as well. And the reason I picked it, again, it's kind of, I mean, I didn't mean to have a theme of underrated movies, but this is definitely an underrated movie in the sense that The budget on this movie was $45 I believe. I'm just uh, double-checking that now. Oh, by the way, an interesting thing is the director doesn't even have a Wikipedia page. His name is Howard McCain, and he's done almost nothing. I checked his IMDb page, and he has done, yes, $47 million this uh, had as a budget. And uh, its box office receipts were... 7 million. So it's fair to say it absolutely tanked. It had a very limited uh, release. I'm not sure that anyone quite knew what to make of it in 2000. Uh, 2008. Originally uh, although the main character is played by Jim Caviezel, the first actor to express interest in being the main character of this was our old friend Carl Urban and I think that Jim Caviezel suffers from that. I mean remember that Carl Urban is the best actor nobody remembers that they enjoyed their performance. It, I still think that if you walk up to seven random people on the street and say yeah did you watch that 2009 Star Trek movie you know the one with Zachary Quinto and Spock Yeah, it wasn't Bones good at that? Oh yeah I really Enjoyed Bones' performance. I thought he was very good. Yeah. Do you see that film Dread? Oh yeah, I cut that on DVD because I didn't go and watch the thing. Oh, did you see the Doom movie? Yeah, I thought that was highly underrated. And I actually really enjoyed that. But it was good yeah. You know the main character, that Reaper. Yeah. There, that's the same guy, Bones. And uh, what? You know, yeah. people don't realise that they're a big Carl Urban fan because Carl Urban is like a chameleon. Now Jim Caviezel is not like a chameleon. Jim Caviezel is Jim Caviezel, and uh, unfortunately, I mean, you know, Jim Caviezel is the greatest actor to play. James Bond who's never actually played James Bond because he is everything. When you think of him, he's an action star, but he's an action star who puts the suave into being an action star. Uh, the first season of Person of Interest was a joy to watch for precisely the reason. Although he was doing all this crazy Kiefer Sutherland 24 crap, his acting was he never broke composure and he could be there like dual-toting pistols or throwing grenades or using automatic weapons to put down, you know, to single-handedly take out five guys in a a street battle and he would just be like calm not wooden not not acting but just like yeah this is all in a day's work for me and I am completely calm and I'm completely in control which is one of the key points about person of interest and real anchor to the show and in this he puts in the same kind of performance it's incredible that he's managed to find a part in a, a movie in which everybody has hair like they've all just left Woodstock at the end of a very long and bedraggled lsd fueled weekend uh, including a of course um, John Hurt and uh Ron Perlman, he's back, everybody. They, they've all got their their sort of hippie on, and he's got this neatly sort of uh, shaved kind of short haircut, which nobody remarks on. he's beautifully, you know, quaffed, and and yeah, so he's he's there, and and I think that, that you know, I mean, at the time, nobody knew who who Jim Caviezel was. Ron Perlman doesn't turn up for nearly an hour, and and you know, people like John Hurt, but it was kind of a quiet thing. I mean, the Viking, uh, Norway, is portrayed by British Columbia and I think uh, there are a couple of points here which probably led to its downfall first of all it clocks in at nearly two hours long now at the end of the day this is a genre piece. It's a bug hunt. It's a monster bug hunt. That is the wacky thing of it being a sort of science fiction kind of epic fantasy crossover. An hour and a half, as Luke Besson will tell you, is good enough for anyone. But unfortunately, they wanted to put This is the problem. When you say what do you cut, you know, it's all good. There, you know, there isn't a bit where you think oh, they could definitely have got rid of that. It would have been hard to cut 25 minutes out of this movie. But I argue it would have been necessary because two hours is a big ask of people to go through all the back and forth. And there's this bit. and There's that bit. And they're explaining these plots. And this is the problem. The characters, all of the characters have some kind of an art during the story like everyone including poor sad neglected bald mead-drinking Boromir who is like Jim Caviezel's the first person now everybody hates Jim Caviezel at the beginning because he's an outlander and nobody trusts him but then he forges a friendship with short squat bald Ultimately, obviously doomed Boromir, and and he, he even he gets a kind of arc of heroism, going from a sort of you know he's one of the lads and he drinks and he and he shouts and he unsuccessfully tries to chat up Viking wenches to the you know the the end of the film where he's he's completely changed the way that he is through his association with Jim Caviezel, and you know he is the sideiest of side characters in a movie jostling with you know the 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 woman who can kick ass and she's got like just sword fighting. With John Hurt, and she's like the sort of the love interest for for Jim Caviezel, and then Jim Caviezel himself, and then the guy who's going to inherit the kingdom, but he's too hot-headed and rash to do it. And then John Hurt, who's like running the 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 kingdom as a kind of well, in the absence and the unfortunate death of the uh, of the girl's father, he's sort of the second running, and he's he's not really confident. And then Ron Perlman is a crazy Viking warlord who doesn't live in the same town, who has a couple of really impressive battle hammers and stuff like this and the arrival of jim caviezel and the the morwen dragon monster into this sort of already boiling soup of viking intrigue and and characterness is just another layer and so you know really there isn't a part of it which isn't somehow satisfying everybody goes from point to a to point b on the character arc thing and and gets a good story but that's 25 minutes too much story because then people kind of lose what am I looking at here? Is this kind of a Viking war story? Is this like, and then there's the dragon thing, the more when, and, the, and uh, let's not forget the monster. And I was like, what is the problem with this monster? You know, if you think xenomorph and you think, you know, predator and you think even sort of things like Freddy Krueger and stuff like that, why is the Morwen not more memorable? I mean, it's a big kind of hefty dragon thing. It's really hard to kill. It's got strange sort of tentacly tongue things. And I think to a certain extent, both this and mutant chronicles, suffer from the fact that in 2008 CG was just too readily available. And I think that these both of these uh, films and stories could have done with a little more ingenuity and a little less, oh let's just do it in the computer. If you compare this idea of people getting picked off in the thing versus, you know, Outlander, the the uh, gigantic glow in the dark dragon is fantastic. I mean it really is a great monster. And yet it's not really very memorable for several reasons. And part of that is because, ironically, all the characters are so sort of, oh, and we go through this way. People complain that the dialogue wasn't great. And to be fair, there isn't anything that the dialogue never really sparkles. But the story is solid and all the different layers of story interact fairly well together I'm starting to sound like I don't enjoy this movie. I love this movie. This is why I think it's underrated and I want to push it forward because again, like mutant chronicles, you're never going to see anything like this, have seen anything like this before and you're not likely to see anything like this again. But am I going to pretend it's got no problems? No, it's got loads of problems and this contributed to its tiny, tiny box office return. But even given all of those things, people really need to sit down and give it a try. because in a way, Outlander is everything that the previous year's Pathfinder, which promised Viking on ninja Aztec goodness and delivered a whole slab of yawns, is not. This is aliens versus Vikings versus dragons versus everything. And, you know, there's a battle scene in the middle uh, where the the tribe that thinks that the Moorwen was in fact an attack by the town. They get a bit right about this and storm the village is incredible and watching ron perlman stride into battle dual wielding stone-headed battle hammers is you know you can't have a movie with that that isn't worth watching for christ's sake so it's a great movie you stick it on you will be entertained i think this is a movie that is going to have its life after its initial release i think this is the kind of movie it's circulating around on netflix now one day you know some 10 year old who was way too young to even know it existed in 2008 is going to stick it on because nobody's watching and be transported into this world of vikings versus aliens and you just be like oh okay why did nobody tell me this movie exists it's going to become in the future i predict a cult sci-fi classic because it never got a chance to be a a non-cult sci-fi classic at the time i take it you haven't seen this Ian. When you get Netflix, which is coming to Australia, I'm imagining it will be on the list of movies that is pretty soon after launch available for you to watch. And if you haven't watched it, you should totally watch it. I think it's just up your just up your alley. Uh, but I think uh, possibly I don't, I'm going to ask Justin a question to deflect the beam from you for a second. I'm not sure I was happy that he stuck around on Earth and went off with the woman at the end, Justin. Um, ooh, I don't
2: know. Actually, I'm not sure. I don't know. I thought that seemed right. I, I, I was
1: happy with that. I, the thing is, you see, I just done a I, because of a, an article I'm writing. I would just done a Mad Max back to back marathon, and he never stuck around at the end. He just went off into the desert to be a wandering Mad Max. And I thought the thing is that the parallels or the similarities between the setup of Outlander and the setup of Mad Max are, if not obvious, at least you know they're, they're there.
2: The problem is you kind of can't go really anywhere with the story now. You can't really have uh, – well, you could do, but it would be a bit of cheats. cheat. So I suppose if he had gone, then that would have opened up the possibility of a kind of a Riddick Chronicles type see, because and then exploring that universe and that planet. Because you see such a small glimpse of that, but it's kind of really evocative and you're like, ooh, that's fantastic, we want to go there. I suppose that limits that. I don't know whether that... So, yeah. so yeah, so narratively, it probably would have made more sense if he had gone.
1: There was a, uh, also a thing where I had some crazy brain fart, and before I watched it again and discovered that this was not the case... The Morwen is definitely a menace. I mean, it's a proper monster, like a dragon. You know, there's fire, there's tentacles, there's a big beefy thing that you can't kill by trying to hit it with swords because its skin is too thick and all of this kind of stuff. But then there's this whole sidebar where Jim Carpenter goes, yeah, but they were living on this planet and then we just came and killed them all. And that wasn't really very nice. There's a lot of ecological subless about oh well you know shouldn't mess with the biosphere and all that shouldn't just take these creatures planets away from them and make render creatures extinct um but i thought that there was um a whole thing where in fact there was some bizarre life cycle where they thought they'd killed them all but they actually hadn't because its life cycle was somewhat different to what they thought it was but there wasn't that was that was rubbish. I'd misremembered that entirely. Although it would have been more interesting. No, what actually happened was that there was one left, oh. and so you know Sue was there with me going. So what? They've just killed the last of this species, and it's like, yeah. Well, on the one hand, it's definitely not right for it to be tromping around, especially bearing in mind the fact that it, it gives birth spoilers everyone while it's there these things are not meant to be about you know they're not the right. earth would have been in big trouble with this yeah, thing wandering around and no technology with which to fight it but on the other hand it yeah it is a sort of we are watching the extinction of species and i feel that this kind of dual message which is what at these days is possibly not helpful at this time. Well, Ian, I'm sorry to have to do this to you, but we've only got one O left and it's yours.
0: Well, let's go odd Bond out, uh because I want to talk about that most uh unique of Bond films on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Ooh. Yes, uh, this is interesting Bond film. Uh, it, it has gained something of a rena- renaissance since its first outing. It was a bit derided upon its first arrival, possibly because people were so focused in on the person who was not Sean Connery. And so not Sean Connery has quite a hard time uh, being accepted. How do you play Sean Connery? I think uh, overall, the strategy was quite good replace Sean Connery, have a Sean Connery replacement not work very well, bribe Sean Connery to return, Sean Connery turns up for the money and goes away again, bit of a bad taste in everyone's mouth, now you can cast anybody as James Bond and it will seem fresh and different, but this is the intermediate, this is the sixth Bond film and we have our first non-Sean Connery Bond in the franchise in the form of George Lazenby, uh, an Australian actor uh, who, was, uh, who apparently had an ego even bigger than Sean Connery's, hence the reason he bailed after one film because, hey, this was merely a stepping stone on, on my rise to fame. I don't think he was particularly well-received. I mean, everyone say he was a fairly good action man, but the actual acting thing perhaps wasn't quite his thing at the time. And at the time, the film was kind of looked down, was kind of seen as a bit of a failure, I suppose, as not the greatest entry in the Bond franchise. This has completely turned around now, where it is generally regarded as one, one of the classics of the era, one of the best of the 70s. It's interesting to note, when when they try and replace Sean, Sean Connery, they did the modern thing they did these days, which is getting rid of all the gadgets. There's no gadgets in uh, on Her Majesty's Secret Service. He's just agent on scene. That's pretty well the gadgets belong to the villain. He wants to destroy the world's food supply. Uh Blowfell played by Tally Savalis. I was saying that correctly. Savalis. You know the guy I'm talking about, it's Kojak. Yes, of course, you yes, have, yeah. have Diana Rigg as well. And I've lost the quote now, but there was a feminist who was talking about this going, isn't it refreshing that Bond meets a woman and you know, falls in love with her and treats her as an equal and marries her at the end? Isn't this it's rather than a parade of girlfriends we're going through? So this is, this is Bond actually being conquered by a Bond woman. And who else could be the Bond woman that conquers Bond other than Diana Rigg? Surely that she must be the one. You know, when I think of this movie, I I do remember all the skiing that goes on. All those wonderful sort of Swiss Alps. I don't know what it is. The wonderful snow swept scenery and how crisp and pure it all seems. If you are going to replace Sean Connery, it's odd how they do it. Because on one hand, they have this clean break where no gadgets. Let's pare it right back down. At the same time, they seem to go out of their way to assure people it's the same Bond. Because they have a scene where he looks through a drawer and he has lots of mementos from all his previous movies. And indeed, the opening sequence of On A Majesty's Secret Service is an hourglass through which pours images from the, the previous Bond movies as well. So you've really wrapped him in, in a big wrapper of, gosh, remember when Sean Connery was in this franchise? Wasn't that a heyday? <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think it really would have been much easier just to just let him stand on his own two feet. Not that he would have hung around anyway. But, uh, yeah, these days, uh, Bond fans really speak up for this movie. It is, it's regarded overall in the franchise as the eighth best by fans. Well, that, well, there's something, I suppose. Yeah, so it's, it's kind of up there and it's kind of a little different. And, uh, yeah, James Bond, it's kind of a love story that has a, a rather sad ending. They don't really get james bond films with sad endings you normally get him getting his end away with some woman he's just met so do you guys have any uh, fond memories or recollection of on her majesty's secret service for me the first james bond that i knew of was roger moore which is just the way it is i mean yeah. that's
1: you know i think when you're of, of our age when you you've got you know one of two ways to go i mean i am sure there must be people in the world who saw on her majesty's secret service first like I never liked those other two guys. Lazenby, that's the way I'm going to go. Uh, you know, I'm sure that does happen somewhere, but not in my world. In my world, you were either going to see Connery or Moore first. And I saw Moore first. So then it came to be you, me that to be explained to me that, um, it wasn't just Roger Moore doing all his, his sort of, uh, uh, gurning and, and, and hammy acting and all the stuff that Roger Moore brought into the Bond franchise for his tenure. Uh, it wasn't just that. There was also this other guy who was a bit more more dangerous and he was sean connery and, and he was scottish and it was the first time that i really had to encounter the fact that the same guy could be played by two dudes who were actually pretty different kinds of dudes and so you know i was always like well i like roger moore sean connery's fine i suppose and then people would explain to me oh yeah and there was this other guy yes he did one as well and you're like <clears throat> okay another thing that didn't serve him well was the fact that he was australian and the idea that you know james bond was being played by an australian has always uh ruffled a few feathers i think among the people who care about such things and oh here's a thing uh, that I i could tell you about on her majesty's secret service i've seen it uh maybe once but i have walked in its set For I have visited the revolving restaurant on (laughs) top of the mountain. And uh, there is a restaurant there now, uh, or indeed there was at the time when I visited. And I say now, now is maybe a little bit presumptuous of me because I would have been, what, 14, 15? So... 25 years ago, there was a restaurant there, and they had a children's menu, and I had some spare pocket money, so I have eaten a turkey escalot peas and chicks in, in the set of, of Her Majesty's Secret Service. Um, uh, yeah, no. Well, it was the only thing that I fancied off the menu, so I remember it. And and I remember the teachers uh, telling us, you know, be very careful in case you feel lightheaded because we're a long way up. Uh, going out onto the observation deck and watching people ski past merrily and all the uh, cable cars that you took to the top. You-
2: it was pretty decent, actually. It
1: was a nice day.
2: Did you ask for the peas, uh, garden not mushed?
1: <laughs> that I, did, I did not need to, for in the revolving restaurant on top of the mountain, garden is all there was. Um, so, yeah, so uh, yeah, um, and of course the chips were in the classic French fry configuration. Yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, it, it, and, and I sat. <laughs> I I sat on the revolving platform and watched the mountains go by as I ate my meal. Because a lot of kids were like, I'm not spending money on food because it was, you know, you can imagine it's like the the late 80s, early 90s on top of a mountain in Switzerland, not known for having the cheapest cost of living on the face of the planet. It was quite an expensive child's meal to have in that place. And a lot of the kids were like, I'm not spending my money on that. And I thought, no, do you know what? You only live once. or <laughs> I, The point was that all these people were coming and they were looking at other people sitting. And you couldn't sit on the chairs to look out the window unless you were eating a meal. So a lot of these kids who went on this thing went to the observation deck. They never got to sit on the slowly revolving platform and enjoy watching the meal go by, which was like the whole feature of the restaurant. I'm, like, I'm not doing that. So I went and I paid for my bloody food. I mean, I suppose it's a, a bizarre that I remember exactly what it was that I had. Um, um, I suppose it's not a meal you're going to forget.
0: Well, but, um, I can tell uh, that because yeah. I once had a burger in Dr. No's nuclear missile base. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh.
1: This, this conversation has
2: taken a very stretch.
0: I must, I have to there, I must confess.
2: If, I, <laughs> if I'm entirely honest, um, I think, uh, Leo's anecdote there was more entertaining than my recollections of this film. It's, yes. uh, <laughs> I, I, I tell you what. all I remember about this film. I do remember the fact that he got married and that was, and the ending. That was, that was very dramatic. I don't remember being hugely overwhelmed, uh, by George Lazenby. I, he was there, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm with Leo. My first kind of bond, uh, was more. And as much as I appreciated, uh, Connery, uh, when I would then see the other films, I mean, that, you know, that, that was set in stone in my mind as at that time, anyway. So, certainly, uh, his early films. And he he suffers as well, you know, it's like uh, Christopher Eccleston, for, for Who. You know, if you've only done one stint at it, it, you can be forgotten quite easily. And you don't really get the chance to kind of stamp home your thing, so...
0: It was precise in those terms. It was kind of couched to me. It was almost like there's this aberration. I mean, there was always, there was a clearly understood, there was Connery and then there, then there was, um, more. Uh, yeah. But, but suddenly there was this one-off with George Lazenby. It almost feels untidy, doesn't it? that this, I think that it this exists. I just- I
1: mean, I've seen documentaries about Bond and uh, on Her Majesty's Secret Service. George Lazenby himself is quite uncomfortable. I, 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 I don't know as Bond, but the thing is, he's very—he's square-shouldered, square-jawed, black, short haircut. Well, he's a male he model. A, yeah. yeah, he looks a bit like a well, yeah, a male model who's doing a bit of a stint as a nightclub bouncer, and. That really. I mean, the thing about Sean Connery is they said, well, they picked him because he walked like a panther, and Roger Moore they picked him because he'd been the saint and he had that kind of uh, sort of an extra campness that that, that they felt that the thing. Did. But what does George Lazenby bring to the party? Uh, right angles uh,
0: and, yes. and dark hair. You know, it's it's not. I, I, it, there's I, nothing about it. I, I might concede that Lazenby is is not the world's strongest actor. He looks good, and I'm sure the fight scenes are great. But uh, I think everything else around it was on top form. Uh, I'm not just saying if you just stuck Sean Connery in there, it would be fine, because Sean Connery by this stage was just pissed off of doing James Bond all the time. But I, I think it is a case that you know people see see beyond the laziness of it all. Here's a Bond which actually has emotional vulnerability. You know, this is before we get to Daniel Craig's emotionally damaged James Bond. This is a James Bond who will say, "I love you." This is a James Bond who is willing to get hurt uh, emotionally. So there, there's that facet of the character that wasn't was not there. But
1: I think that I think that there's, there's a certain amount to which, in the same way that uh, introducing the notion that offing the dragon that's been ripping its way through the inhabitants of a Viking village for the last hour and a half is the last of its species, and shouldn't we be trying to preserve life in all its forms, even the ones that will quite happily eat you as an order? derb you know there's that kind of thing it's like is that do we really need to do that to be fair and in the same way james bond weirdly it's you know it's like when somebody said let's make a crow sequel and turn it into a spaghetti western to bring more depth to the the mythic status of the crow no just doing black leather rock music it'll all be fine adding more emotional depth to james bond in that way isn't necessarily making james bond
0: better I mean, I, I hold it up as an interesting artefact. It, yes, yes. it is yes. It is a rung on the evolutionary ladder. And you can look at it and point think, it on the scientific
2: graph. I can understand how fans would look at it differently now because it is easier. So, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, at the time, you know, it, it was the main two and he was obviously going to look rather kind of small in comparison to, to the giants that were kind of trying to do more at the time. But now we've got quite a few bonds under our belts it's a little bit more, I mean, the same way in kind of Doctor Who as well, in that you can kind of go, well, there's lots of different flavours and of which he is, you know, he's canon. He is, he is there. It's like less competition now, I think. Obviously an important film in it. I mean, I probably, I, I tend to get my bonds confused, like in terms of plot lines, Um, you know, there's so many volcano bases and you know various <laughs> things on that, that I, I, I'm probably, probably would need to revisit again just to kind of get more out of it. But look, so yeah, so I, th- I think, I think probably we'll be kinder
0: to him in time yes. now. Uh, the, the one thing that does have a linger in my memory. Oh, by the way, in this one, it is revealed that the, the, uh, Bond family motto is the world is not enough. Oh, that'll make a good title later for another forgettable uh-huh. Bond film. But, uh, is, is that, you know, he saves Dana rig for committing suicide on a beach and then tracks down her dad, who is some, some sort of crime boss. And it, and he's like, oh, she's out of control. She's really wild. Uh, tell you what, Bond, can you romance her? Uh, no, actually, Bond, can you, like, have sex with her? Have a lot of hard sex with her? You need to bring <laughs> her in line. It's like, this conversation has never happened between a dad and some potential bloke from the government ever before in history.
1: So, yeah, so there we go. Good, right. Well, I can see that uh, we've already... I'm wondering now, actually, now that I come to think about all the things that I just said about George Lazenby and the conversation that you just related, whether On Her Majesty's Secret Service was in fact uh, responsible to a greater degree than any other Bond movie for the genesis of Sterling Archer. I think <laughs> that possibly that's... I could just fix <laughs> yes. <think to> that. <laughs> I can see the resemblance <laughs> now, actually, because I mention it. <laughs> so there we go we've uh we've we've put that mystery to less. but if at home you're thinking what the hell was that we only got two m movies two o movies and one of the n's was a number and you want to tell us about all the m's and the n's and the o's that we've now merrily skipped over
0: without even really thinking about it
1: where ian might they go to complain at us in that direction
0: well, one place you can go to say this episode seemed long enough to, to them, thank you very much, uh, it would be our Facebook page, which you can find on Facebook forward slash revenge of the 80s kids, and that's 80s as in numbers, 80s. Uh, please go there and like our page. It is our community hub. We put up links to our podcast there, as well as links we find interesting. But podcasts are what it's all about, and for those who want a point to point your web browser towards 80s kids, and that's 80s as in letters, so e-i-g-h-t-i-s com. please go there and subscribe to our podcast using the podcast aggregate of your choice or download to your pc for dark reasons of your own but this is only where our most recent podcasts can be found for the legacy of our podcast you must point your to browser towards the 80skids.blogspot.co.uk where our full archive of all our past episodes will be found one day, and listen to this in the archive. Trust me, it's all there by now. Uh, so please go there and enjoy every single episode of the 80s kids ever. But if this isn't enough for you, you can hunt down individual 80s kids in such places as...
1: Uh, Well, leo.stableford.com. that's where you can find uh, my stuff, which is videos and and, and articles and and stuff like that. You know, it is usually quite a grab bag. It's a blog, you know, it doesn't really have an agenda. But if you do want an agenda and you want that agenda to be less wordy and more visual, where Justin might find an 80s kid that could satisfy that desire?
2: Well, you might be able to see examples of my art on my Demon Art page, Uh where obviously now I have to uh, illustrate Leo's new podcast, What I Ate on the- <laughs> Film Locations. That's a working title. There's miles in that, I fear. And I do have my own website, which is currently being redeveloped. I will give you details of that in a later podcast, but I, uh, for the shame of it, I can't, I can't let it out amongst the public at this stage.
1: Uh, fair enough. So uh yes, I'm I'm uh going off in a minute to uh uh to, to dig out those pictures of me eating pepperoni pizza on one eyed <laughs> Willie's treasure ship. Uh <laughs> fast food and movie locations.
2: It's the uh,
1: it's the way of the future. I take it, Ian, you're going to go away somewhere to, in a Nosferatu-esque fashion, expire into some kind of box.
0: No, I'm going to try and preserve my life by keeping my body at low temperature and injecting spinal fluid into myself.
1: That's, I can't see a downside to that plan. How about you, Justin?
2: I'm off to introduce uh, giant monsters into uh, uh, 17th century Russia. Just something yeah, I've got to do.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, it's it is Bank Holiday Monday uh, here in yeah. the UK as we record this. So obviously, what else would you do with your time? Yeah. Uh, so we're all uh, gainfully employed, uh, uh, and we hope that you will be too. And you'll join us next time on a Revenge of the Eighty Kids. But for now, bye bye. Farewell. Bye bye.